I think we can agree that contained in John's gospel, um, we have some of our most beloved stories and sayings of Jesus. We recently took two weeks to look at John 3 and uh, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. I think many of us are familiar with that story. In John 4, we'll look at Jesus and the woman at the well. Uh, A very interesting story, a great story. You go forward to John 11, and we have Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I think many of us are probably familiar with that story as well. Then, of course, you have the many I am sayings in John's gospel. John 14.6 being one that many of us know. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But as Brother uh, Aaron said, I mean, there's probably no passage that Christians are more familiar with than John 3.16. I've known many unbelievers who are familiar with John 3.16. You can begin, for God so loved the world, and most people can fill it in and continue with the rest of the verse. Every Sunday when I preach, there's a weightiness, um, and it comes from not me being nervous to speak in front of people. I'm kind of over that. It's the weightiness that comes from handling God's Word. And, uh, you know, John 3.16, I've often heard it described as the gospel in miniature, right? And that's really what we have, is the gospel in miniature. And we're going to look at the gospel in John 3.16 and verse 17. I'm going to call this the gospel part one. And then next week, um, if the Lord is so kind to allow us to come back together, we'll look at John 3.18 to 21, which will be the gospel part two. But here's the big idea for our text, John 3, 16 and 17. I'll spend most of my time in verse 16, and as you can see in your handout, there's a lot there. There's a lot there in verse 16. I have six things I want us to look at. But the big idea is this. Simply put, Jesus died so we could live. Amen? Jesus died so we could live. Let me ask you a few questions. Why did I give Haley, my wife, an engagement ring? Why do I pray and read the Bible with my children every night? Why do I pray for you, church, and seek to bring God's word to you every Lord's day? And it's the same answer for all three questions, love, love. I gave Haley, my wife, a ring because I love her and wanted to marry her. I spend time reading the Bible and praying with my children daily because I love them, and I desire to see them walking with Jesus. And church, I pray for you, and I seek to bring God's word to you every Sunday because I love you, and I want to see you present and mature before Christ one day. Again, love is not something that we simply say. It's something that we do. It's something that we show. It's something that we demonstrate. And never, everybody say never, and I hope we agree with this. We should. Never has love been shown so incredibly and beautifully as with the cross of Jesus Christ. So I want us to take a moment this morning to behold that love together, the love of Jesus on display, God's love for sinners at the cross. Well, what do we learn from these two verses? And we have two verses we're going to look at this morning. Two things. Number one, we have the grounds for the cross. What is the reason for the cross? I suppose we could give several answers, and many of those answers would be correct, right? But what is the reason, according to John 3.16, for the cross, the grounds 
for the cross. Let's read verse 16. Listen carefully. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. So what do we see here? I see six things. Six things that I want to carefully unpack for God's people today. Number one, we're going to call these A, B, C, D, E, and F. Okay, so we'll start with A. A is the motive for the cross. We have the motive. What is the motive for the cross? B, we have the result of God's love. C, we have the scope of God's love. D, we have the proper response to the cross. E, we're going to see mankind's state, their spiritual state, without the cross. And then finally, F, the promise of the cross. What does the cross promise. So as you can see, there's a lot here in verse 16. And maybe that's why it's become such a popular verse among Christians. I want us to look at these six things one at a time. So A, we're going to start with A, the motive for the cross. For God so loved the world. God's love. Everybody say God's love. Oh man. God's love is the motive or the reason for the cross. Do you want proof of God's love for his church, for his people? Look no further than the cross. So let's unpack this statement. Now the question here is this. Does the language of so loved denote, it could denote two things here, for God so loved. It could denote degree or manner. And there's a difference. Let me explain. Is John saying God loved the world so much in such a grandiose way God's love is so big that he sent his son. That's degree. Or God loved the world in this manner, namely by sending his son. That's manner. Both are true. Amen? God does love us so much that he sent his son. And God did show us his love in the following manner. He sent his son to die for sinners. Both are true, but I believe the former is being emphasized, which is the more natural reading of the Greek. For God so loved the world. God loved the world this much, so much that he what? He sent his son. All right, you got kids, you'll be able to identify with this, relate to this. If you were a kid at any time, which all of us were, it's a long time ago for some, not so long ago for others, but I think all of us can relate to this illustration. A child may ask his father, his daddy, Daddy, how much do you love me? Whoa. How much do I love you, son? Now, as parents, we often use our hands to communicate the degree or the intensity of our love for our children. And we'll get our hands. You want to know how much I love you, son? I mean, ah, ah. If they could go further, they would. I love you this much. Who's done that to their kids? I love you this much. John's language, for God so loved the world, God loved the world so much, John's language stresses the intensity of the Father's love. The Father loved the world so much that he gave, he gave his only son. Now, the intensity, listen, the degree, the intensity is heightened when we realize just exactly what the Father gave for us. Do we realize that? Do we know what the Father gave? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But do we truly understand what that means? Now, how does verse 16 
relate to verse 9, what we saw last week. Let's look at some context here. The cross answers the question posed by Nicodemus in verse 9, how can these things be, Jesus? Nicodemus lacked understanding regarding the new birth. How can one be born again? What makes this possible, namely entrance into God's kingdom? The answer, the cross. What's the answer? The cross. And what Jesus wants us to see is that the cross is grounded in God's incredible love. And that brings us to be the result of God's love. The result of God's love. That he gave his only son. The father didn't simply verbalize his love. I love you. He didn't just do that. He didn't just speak from the sky. But he demonstrated his love by a specific action, the giving of his what? The giving of his son. Now the verb to give. We give things all the time. We give our time. We give gifts. But the Greek word here is unique. It's didomi. Everybody say didomi. It's good. It's very good. High marks for all of you. But the verb to give used here in John 3.16 denotes both sacrifice and generosity. Oh, okay, now we're getting somewhere. You know, the, the father didn't just say, ah, here you go. No, what he gave, it denotes what? Generosity and sacrifice. It was costly. It was a costly giving, amen? Do you, do you get that, church? The father generously sacrificed his son. And not just his son. Okay, let's, let's take it a bit further because the text does, but his only son. Now, the word only comes from the Greek word monogenes. Mono meaning one, right? Monogenes means unique, one of a kind. He didn't just give his son. He gave his unique, one of a kind, nobody else like him son. The father generously sacrificed his what? His unique, one-of-a-kind son. As one scholar notes, the language that John uses stresses the greatness of the gift. Is there a greater gift than the son, the unique son, being generously sacrificed for sinners? Say it with me. No, of course not. The father generously sacrificed his most beloved, his greatest treasure for us. You see, the Father has loved the Son for how long? For eternity. For all time. There has existed a perfect relationship, a perfect community between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Father sent the Son to bring us, His church, into that love so that we could share in that love and be eternally recipients of that same love. There is no greater gift than this. You know, Haley, my wife, is an incredible gift giver. She really is. She's not only generous, but she's extremely intentional. I know this, my children know this, and all of our family knows this. What she gives and how she gives it communicates her deep love for us, her family. Now, it's a sad story, um, but it's a true story. Why are you laughing then, Chris? You'll see why. Years ago, when we were still living in Washington State, I remember we were at a coffee shop in Marysville, Washington, 
and it was shortly after Christmas. And I mean, what do, what do adults ask kids a few days after Christmas? What'd you get? How was your Christmas? What did you get? So, you know, we're at this coffee shop, and I got Clark with me, and there's this little boy his age. I said, hey, bud, what'd you get for Christmas? I'm not lying here. His name is John. I'll never forget his name because of his answer. If he would have said a new bike or a fishing pole or a BB gun, I wouldn't remember the story. But this is what little John said. I quote, I got a stick and a rock for Christmas. What? And this was my response. And I couldn't help it. I'm sorry, buddy. I mean, what do you say to that? And he was serious. I got a stick and a rock for Christmas. What that communicated was pretty sad. Either John was a very naughty boy that year, or his parents simply didn't know how to give good gifts. Now, thankfully, that's not the case with God the Father. Amen? As we've learned, he generously sacrificed his greatest treasure for us. And this helps us to better understand the meaning of the word love. For God so what? He loved the world. The verb used here in the Greek, it means to sacrificially do good to another. What does it mean, the verb to love? To sacrificially do good to another. The cross is the epitome of love. It's true. It's the epitome of love. It represents a sacrifice made for our greatest good. What's our greatest good? Being reconciled to God. Friends, we don't have to guess at God's love, do we? Do we have to guess I just don't know. I hope he loves me. I don't know. No, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, you know that he loves you. We don't have to guess at God's love. We have proof of it at the cross. Amen? The cross is the ultimate proof of God's love. God's love was seen. It's tangible. It's active. You know, I've met with men and women over the years who agonize over this question. Does my spouse love me? They never say it, and they rarely show it, and that is a tragedy. But it's one that the cross precludes for the believer. God has declared, more than that, has shown his love for us at the the cross. And let us not forget the great cost of this gift. It cost us nothing, but it cost the Father his Son And it cost the Son his very life. And all God's people said, Amen. See the scope of God's love. The scope. For God so loved the the world. You know, love always has an object, right? I love. Man, bro, what do you love? Right? I mean, someone just goes around saying, I love. Who? What? Love has an object. It's always followed by a person or a thing. Our passage says that God so loved the, what's the object? The world. Now, what does the word world mean here? What does it refer to? You know, you know, Greek's not that different from English. It actually is very different. But there are some similarities, okay? Context matters. In Greek, just like in English, a word can have a variety of meanings. But to get to the heart of the meaning, you have to look at the surrounding context. Let me give you an example. If I'm on the basketball court and I say pass the ball, it's obvious that I'm referring to a 
bouncy orange spherical object, right? A basketball. If Haley's getting dressed in the other room, and I say, hey, babe, what are you wearing to the ball tonight? I'm referring to a formal dance, right? When was the last time you went to a ball? I can't think of a time I have gone. I, I, I long for that day. I can't wait. Um, but again, I know the difference between a ball, a formal dance, and a bouncy, round, orange object. So what about the word world here in our passage, for God so loved the, the world? Let's look at the surrounding context. How has the word world been used already in John? Well, let's go back to John 1.29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, the world. That's pretty cool. Takes away the sins of the world. So the world is what? Sinful. And if we go even further back to John 1, 9 and 10, we read, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay, so world here, thus far in John, has a pretty negative connotation. It's sinful, and it doesn't know Jesus. That being said, the word world here in John 3.16 more generally refers to sinful mankind, the created order opposed to God and in rebellion against God. I love this quote by D.A. Carson. Don Carson writes, God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. It's so bad. The emphasis in verse 16 is on the matchless love of God, the intensity of that love, which is seen when one truly understands the object of God's love. That's the point. It's the same point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Listen to Paul. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, weak? Ungodly? He died for such as those? Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died not for the righteous or good, but for the weak, ungodly, and sinful. What love? Amen? I mean, what love? God loved us before we were made his children. He loved us while we were rebels. God loved us first. Again, John wants us to see that salvation is who's doing. It's God's doing. God loved us first. And we certainly don't deserve it, do we? We saw that last week and the week prior. And we certainly can't earn it, can we? We can't earn it. Because... As we've learned over the past few weeks, again, this is why context is so important. This is why it's good to preach through a book of the Bible, one verse at a time. A case is being made. What we've learned over the past few weeks is that we are born spiritually dead, unable to please God, and unable to respond to God appropriately. That is why John's gospel emphasizes the new birth before the call to faith. Again, what can the dead do, friends? 
Absolutely nothing. It's only once the gospel is proclaimed and the spiritually dead are made alive by the Spirit that they are able to respond in faith to Jesus. Furthermore, I want to talk about this word world a little more. For God so loved the world. What we see here and what we see in Scripture is that God's love is not limited to one people group. Amen? That's really good news. When words like all or peoples or world are used in association with God's love and his saving work, the focus is on the nations. It's looking back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12.3. Now, again, think about Genesis 12. What happens before Genesis 12? You have the flood. You have the Tower of Babel. I mean, mankind is a mess. And yet God says, through Abraham, through his offspring, through the seed of promise, I am going to bless all the families of the earth. Wow! Now, this is not universalism, but rather the reminder that God has always envisioned a rescued people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Recall Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Go make disciples of all nations, and especially Revelation 7, 9. Revelation 7, 9 reads, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Why do we do missions? Why do we do missions? Because God's heart is for the world, the nations. Amen? D, the proper response to the cross. What is the proper response to this love that was shown us at the cross? That whoever what? Whoever what? Believes in him. You know, faith is a major theme in John's gospel. We've looked at it multiple times already. It answers the question, faith answers the question, what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with the cross? We believe. We trust in Jesus and his saving work as the saving solution, the only saving solution to our great spiritual problem. Now, where else do we see faith emphasized in John's gospel? Here's a few places. John 3.36. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever what? Believes. John 20, verse 31. This is the purpose statement for John's gospel. But these things are written. He's talking about the signs, the miracles, right? These signs, these miracles, John is saying, I've recorded for you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, I I like the chair illustration. Can I use it one more time? Maybe you weren't here last week. Yeah, okay, thank you. I want to, I guess I don't need to ask, but I, I want to. Oh, they would lock him in place. It's all right. I can unlock him. Okay, so I'm tired right now. I'm not, I'm not really, but I'm, I'm tired. Oftentimes, if there's a chair, I'm going to sit down. Now, what did I not do? Did I inspect the chair? Did I get down on all fours and make sure this thing is structurally sound? No, I, I trusted that the chair would do what? Would hold me up, okay? So keep that in mind. What does it mean to trust in Jesus? It's just like the chair. Chair can't save you, though. (laughs) Jesus can, okay? When you trust in Jesus, you are believing that because of his perfect life 
in his sacrificial death, in his victorious resurrection for sinners like you and me, if we trust in him, what he did will hold us up, will save us from sin and the wages of sin, which is eternal death, for how long? Forever, for all eternity. Just like the chair, right? Trust in Jesus, only he can save you. He can hold you up. For how long? Forever. E, mankind's state without the cross. What is mankind's state without the cross? That whoever believes in him should not what? Perish. Outside of Jesus, outside of faith in Jesus, outside of trusting in Jesus, we aren't simply spiritually sick or spiritually deficient, but spiritually dead and headed to hell. We are, look around, we are the most desperate of all. We need the Savior because without him we are forever what? We're forever dead. You know, the the rest of verse 16 helps us to better understand our true spiritual plight outside of Jesus Christ. The end of our verse reads, but have eternal life. What is the opposite of that? Eternal death. And this is what's at stake here. Again, here we see the immensity of God's love. What he did in love, the sacrificial giving of his only son, he did to save us from eternal damnation, eternal separation, eternal death. The trajectory of the unbeliever is not annihilationism. It's not, you know, when the unbeliever dies, they're simply going to, poof, cease to exist. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the trajectory of the unbeliever is eternal punishment. As Jonathan Edwards famously said, and I love this quote by J. Ed, because we've sinned against an eternal God, we deserve eternal punishment. Oh, but the cross. Amen? Oh, but the cross. The cross is the remedy to our great sin problem. And this is what we saw last week with Nick, Nicodemus. Jesus did not leave Nicodemus without the message of hope. As we learned last week, I mean, Nicodemus was a mess. You know, on the outside, he looked great. Teacher of the law, member of the Sanhedrin. I mean, it's like he's a Harvard grad and then went to Yale for law school. I mean, quite the pedigree, right? But what does Jesus expose? His greatest need has not been met because he lacks understanding. He does not receive the testimony of Jesus, and he lacks what? Is that F word? Faith. I should be careful saying that. Faith. Faith. Where does Jesus leave Nicodemus? He lacks understanding. He has not received the testimony of Jesus, and he lacks faith. Jesus, in the midst of all of that, still compassionately points Nicodemus to the cross. The good news that the Son of Man must be lifted up in order that those who believe in him will have eternal life. I want you to look around this week. And kids, when you're back in school the fall, I want you to look around on a normal day, on a Monday, whether it be at work or in the classroom, And what you're going to find is this. Most of us find ourselves surrounded by unbelievers. It's true? Raise your hand if you work with an unbeliever or go to school with an unbeliever. Someone who's not following Jesus. Half of us. Okay, I think there's more. 
I don't like to raise my hand. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Whatever. Most of us find ourselves surrounded by unbelievers. What is their state, friends? What is their state? They are spiritually dead and headed to hell. Does that bother you? They're spiritually dead. The unbeliever is spiritually dead and headed where? They're headed to hell. What do they need? Who do they need? They need Jesus. They need to hear the message of the cross. Will you be the one to take it to them? What a privilege to be a herald of the gospel. Will you be the one to introduce them to Jesus? Pray that your heart would be burdened for the lost. Pray for opportunity. I dare you. Pray for opportunity. Pray for boldness to share the message of the cross with the lost. Pray for the Spirit of God to give new birth to the spiritually dead through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Go make disciples, church. That's our calling. Is true? All right, let me end with this. Well, I'm going to end verse 16 with F. The promise of the cross. Oh, did you know that the cross comes with the promise? But have what? Should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. What we've learned already in John is that without Christ, there's eternal separation from God, eternal death, and eternal punishment in hell. But in Christ, and because of the cross, and through faith in Jesus, eternal what? Eternal life. That is the promise of the cross. One brother has written, to have eternal life is to know God, i.e., be in a relationship with him and experience all the blessings that flow from that, both in the present age and in the age to come. This is life to the fullest, and it begins when? Eternal life begins when? It begins now, if you've trusted in Jesus. Amen? Recall Jesus' words in John 10.10. 10. We'll get there eventually. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly or to the fullest. What makes this life, listen, what makes this life that Jesus talks about, this life that the gospel promises us, right, eternal life, what makes this life so incomparably wonderful and beautiful is that it is life with who? It's life with Jesus. And what is the duration of this life, friends? How long? Can I share something with you that will encourage you and make you long for that life more and more every day? I want to share a verse with you that has made me personally long for that life more and more every day. And it's found in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. Paul says, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, here it is, so that in the coming ages, in the future, he might show the immeasurable riches. What does that word immeasurable mean? It's beyond what? It's beyond measure. It's so vast. It's infinite. It's beyond measure. What's in store for those who trust in Christ? What's in store for us in heaven? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying here? Again, what's the promise of John 3.16? Those who trust in Jesus get what? Eternal life. What makes that life so grand, so wonderful, so beautiful? It's life with who? Jesus, how long is it? It's, what's the adjective? It's eternal. But again, 
What makes that so great? Why should we long for that life now? What is Paul saying here in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7? He's saying, are you ready? He's saying that in eternity, we will continue to be taken aback and overwhelmed by the immeasurable riches of Christ. We will spend, listen friends, in eternity being awed, wowed by Jesus. Let me explain. I'll be honest. One of my kids is here. Uh, actually, all of them are here. But one's in here right now. Disney World. I have no desire to go. I'm sorry. Can we still be friends? Okay, I guess so. But can I use Disney as an illustration? It's like a child at Disney World for the first time. Now, let me explain. When they entered, and I've been. I, I was there, I guess I was probably 15. And, and I, I enjoyed it, sure. But when a child enters the park, they are immediately overwhelmed by the magnitude of it all. The rides, the characters, the bigness of everything. But then they quickly realize there's more. There's more rides. There's even more parks. There's more surprises. And what do they learn quickly, the child? You cannot take it all in in one day. It requires several days. And that's how they make their money, right? Just kidding. But seriously, like to really enjoy Disney, because it's so vast, it takes multiple days. And every day there's new surprises, new rides to be wowed by. Imagine this sensation for eternity. John Piper writes, there will always be more. He's talking about heaven. There will always be more, gloriously more forever. We will spend eternity taking in more and more of these riches. If that doesn't get you excited, I hope it's not football. I hope it's that expectation of being eternally wowed by the riches of Christ in glory forever. There will always be more. In heaven, friends, we will be eternally wowed by the awesomeness, the riches of our Savior. Eternal life with Jesus is the greatest blessing imaginable. What kind of life does the cross provide for undeserving sinners? Eternal life with God. The cross truly is the solution to our sin problem. You know, Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3, 1 to 8, reveal the gravity of our situation apart from Jesus. We are spiritually dead and in need of new birth. Without the new birth, we will remain spiritually dead for how long? For eternity. The cross provides and promises eternal life, the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem. What love? What grace? Now, there's one more quickly. There's one more major question that our passage answers, one that we must take the time to examine, and it's found in the next verse, verse 17. Here's my second point, the purpose of the cross. We've looked at the grounds of the cross. Now, let's end by talking about the purpose of the cross. Again, why did Jesus die? Why? You know, I had somebody ask me once, why can't God just snap his fingers and everyone's forgiven? Why not that? That's what I do. I'm not saying that's what I do. I'm saying that's what they said. That's what I do. Verse 17. Again, leave this question hanging in the air. Why did Jesus die? 
Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Not this, but this. Not this, but this. That's the movement of our passage. What we must understand is that the cross does concern, it does concern judgment and condemnation, but not ours. Are you thankful yet? God is just and he's merciful. Therefore, what he does is both just and merciful. And God's justice and God's mercy come together at the the cross. At the cross, God does punish sin. And yet, at the same time, at the cross, God demonstrates his mercy. But how? How can it be both? How can these two things, which seem like They're mutually exclusive. They're diametrically opposed. Justice and mercy, but no, they're married at the cross. But how? At the cross, listen, don't miss this. At the cross, the world isn't condemned, but the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. And therefore, at the cross, we behold God's amazing love, His mercy, His grace. Jesus takes the punishment we deserve. Recall Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. That word means punishment that brought us peace. So this was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 53 verse 5 looks ahead prophetically to the cross. And what does it say? What Jesus would endure at the cross, the punishment placed upon him would be so that we can have peace Relational harmony with God. Imagine someone asking you, what was the purpose of the cross of Jesus Christ? Simply take them to the end of John 3, verse 17. John 3, 17. In order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus died to provide salvation for the world, for sinful mankind from every tribe, tongue, and nation in this through him. Only through trusting in Jesus can sinners be saved. And although Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, those who reject Jesus stand condemned and will be judged. You know, John 3, 16 and 17 provides us with both inclusive and exclusive language. The language of, for God so loved the The world helps us to see the grand scope of Jesus' saving work. He didn't simply die for one people group, but for the nations. And yet, not everyone will be saved. Only those who come to Jesus in faith, trusting in him for salvation, looking to his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. Although he came for many, only those who trust in him will be saved. There is salvation in no other name. Is true? Only Jesus. If you look to anyone else or anything else for right standing with God, you will find yourself both eternally disappointed and eternally condemned. I mentioned John 14, 6 earlier. What does it say? What did Jesus say? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. 
Jesus was sent to save the condemned. All mankind is condemned already because all mankind is sinful. We come into this world condemned. We come into this world as objects of God's wrath in need of saving. And Jesus came to save sinners through his saving work. This is the great shock. If you're not shocked by this, this is the great shock of the gospel. One would expect the sinless Savior, the sinless Son of God, to come into a sin-filled world, a world that not only didn't recognize him, a world that didn't only not receive him, but a world that was opposed to him, one would expect said Savior to come into said world to bring what? Judgment. To mete out punishment. And yet, surprisingly, that is not why Jesus came. He came to rescue the condemned by being condemned in our place. Amen? There's no greater story and there's no greater news that Jesus came to rescue the condemned by being condemned in our place. Let me end with these application steps and then I'm going to pray. Number one, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus for salvation. Only he can save you. Only he can save you. Trust in Jesus. Believe that what he did through his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead is enough to bring you, sinner, into a forever relationship with God. Believe in Jesus. Trust in him. Two, pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God for the cross and what it declares about him. If you're a Christian, if you trust in this good news and you're not thankful, you have every reason to be thankful. Amen? Your greatest need has been met. And the greatest gift given and the greatest hope imaginable made yours through Jesus. Number three, be in awe of the cross. Man, we're in awe of so many things today in the church, right? So many things wow us. But what, what should we be most in awe of, friends? What should have our heart above all else? Christ and his work on the cross. And then lastly, proclaim. Proclaim the message of the cross to those around you. I'm going to keep pushing the 1-4-P challenge until everyone does it a hundred times. Find one person in your relational world who doesn't know Christ. Find one unbeliever. Write their name down. And begin praying for them. Plan how you're going to reach out to them. Make sure you're practicing the gospel in front of them, that you're living out your faith faithfully. And then number four, you've got to proclaim to them the good news. Amen? You've got to share it. You know, the cross does really two important things. First, it shows us what God is like. And two, it shows us what we're like. Amen? The cross shows us what God is like. And two, it shows us what we're like. What do we learn about God from the cross? God is loving and what do we learn about ourselves? We are deserving of death. Or put another way, we are sinners. And Jesus, the God-man, is a merciful Savior. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for so many things. We're thankful for your word that contains this good news message. We're thankful for your church that gathers to be reminded of this good news message. But most importantly, Father, we're thankful for your Son that you sent into this world, your one and only Son, your unique, one-of-a-kind Son that you sacrificially 
and generously gave for us to die in our place, taking the punishment that our sin deserves so that we who trust in Jesus could be forever forgiven and forever brought into your family. Father, we love you for what the gospel promises, eternal life with you. And we thank you that your word promises that for those who trust in Jesus, when we spend in eternity with you every day, we're going to be more and more wowed by the riches of Christ. Father, I pray that we would long for that now. But I pray until you call us home or until you return, may we be found busy proclaiming this good news to others. Father, give us a burden for the lost. Help us to see the lost through your eyes. Help us to share this good news with our fellow classmates and coworkers and friends and neighbors, calling them to repent and leave their sin behind and trust in the merciful Savior who lived, died, and rose again to save us. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,